Good morning. I knew I, I wasn't supposed to be speaking here this morning. That wasn't part of the plan. Um, last Saturday, we were in our grace marriage session, and one of our cardinal rules in grace marriage is you don't talk on your phone during grace marriage, and uh, my phone began to vibrate, and I saw on the screen that it was Pastor Mike calling, and I knew that he knew that I was in grace marriage. I knew he wouldn't be calling me if it wasn't some kind of an emergency, so I went ahead and took the call, and he let me know his grandmother had passed away and that he would be in Ohio this weekend. And so I know a lot of you have been praying about that this morning, uh, but I say all that to say this. Based on the, the passage that we're covering this morning, I think it's appropriate that it wasn't in the plan for me to be preaching today, and I think you'll understand that as we move along. Uh, turn with me in your Bibles, if you will, to the book of James chapter 4, where in just a moment we will be reading verses 13 through 17. And while you're finding that, let me ask you a question. Where are my planners today? Yeah. You know, what you want to accomplish, when you want to accomplish it, how you want to accomplish it. Kim, those, those are your people. Those are your people. My wife is a planner. And since we basically grew up together, um, we have also, to a degree, learned to plan together. She has taught me to be a planner. We've been planning together since as far back as the late 80s when we were still in high school and just dating. Uh, back then we planned that Kim would finish college in two years, that we would then get married, then I would finish college, then we'd have a couple kids, we'd buy a house. The plan was pretty detailed, right? And in the beginning, everything in our plans started out pretty good. She did finish college in two years. We did get married. But before I could finish my first year of nursing clinicals, Shelby was born. Hiccup number one in our planning. I'm not complaining. She's been a huge blessing to us her whole life long. But having her that early in our marriage was definitely not part of the plan. So what did we do? Well, we went right back to planning. We knew we wanted our kids to be born fairly close to one another. So Kim got, we knew if she got pregnant again at a particular time, then the second baby would be born after I graduated and got a job, and then we'd be done having kids, and at that point we would be a two RN family, and we would be rolling in the dough, we'd be rich, but once again our plans were foiled, and most of you probably know why. In the summer of 1993, we discovered we were expecting triplets. Soon after that, Kim was on bed rest for an, or in the hospital for the remainder of her pregnancy. She lost her job. The medical bills piled up. Eventually, we did bring home three healthy daughters who, again, have been blessings to us their whole life long. And I did graduate and become gainfully employed as a nurse. But with four daughters to care for, Kim never returned to full-time nursing. And we definitely never got rich. Instead, we spent years paying off medical bills. And what we learned from those experiences and many others like them, where our plans were so drastically and unexpectedly altered, is what we're going to be talking about today in James chapter 4, beginning with verse 13. Let's read our passage now. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such city, and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes, vanishes away. 
Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. I know you've heard this over and over again as we've been studying the book of James, but I'm going to say it again today. All throughout this book, James has been giving us tests. Tests to see if our faith is living and genuine. He's been giving us tests to examine our hearts and see if we are truly children of God. And today is no exception. In today's passage, James is challenging us to ask, is it truly my desire to do the will of God? Because the heart of a true child of God is revealed by the fact that they're seeking to do God's will. Their faith is evidenced by the ways in which they take time to carefully discern and live out the will of God. On the other hand, constant disregard or constant disinterest in the will of God is the surest evidence of the presence of pride. In other words, disregarding or being disinterested in what God wants is basically saying, I am in control of my own life and I will decide what's best for me. And that kind of pride is a barrier to saving faith. And we know that because right here in this fourth chapter of James, up in verse 6, we read these words, God is opposed to the who? To the proud. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so just as pride is the sin behind conflict that we talked about in the beginning of this chapter, it's also the sin behind a disregard for God's will that we're going to be talking about today. Pride says, I will, ruin, I will rule my own path and decide where I'm going to go. On one hand, James says, people who don't do the will of God are arrogant. They're full of pride, and pride is incompatible with a life that's being transformed by grace. But on the other hand, those who actually do the will of God do so because in humility, they were saved and granted a new heart and a new nature. Their life is no longer consumed by self-centered, pride-filled thoughts. They no longer live a life of self-indulgence. Instead, their desire is to do God's will because they understand that their life only has value because God sent his son to redeem them. When a man understands the wretched sinner that he actually is and understands that his salvation comes only because God had to pay the price for it, what's there to be proud of? Where is there room for pride there? It's not that a person who's saved by God's grace never does something prideful or selfish or never thinks a prideful or selfish thought. It's just that when they do, they feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And they need to repent. Pride and selfishness cannot be the dominant characteristic in someone who has been transformed by the grace of God. Does that make sense? That's what we're going to see in this passage. James preaches this for us in such a relatable way. So let's read again just verse 13. You might as well keep your Bible open to that page because we're going to refer back to this passage over and over and over again. Just verse 13. 
Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Let's take just a minute to remember who James is writing to. He's writing to Jewish Christians, and many of them were businessmen. And what do businessmen do? They start and operate businesses, right? In some regard, things in this ancient world weren't much different than they are today. As a city would begin to prosper, uh, those cities would become focal points of business. They would attract new businesses. When I was a teen, about 14 and 15, my brothers who are five and six years younger than me were really into baseball. And in the summertime, they'd play a lot of all-star baseball tournaments, and a lot of them were held in the town of Fishers. And Fishers at that time was basically a bunch of cornfields and a McDonald's. That's like all that was there. But at some point, as Hamilton County began to grow, people needed housing. So land developers began buying up farm ground and building housing subdivisions in Fishers. Once the housing subdivisions were there, those people needed a place to shop and they needed places to eat. And so that area began to attract businesses, right? Uh, restaurants, shopping centers. And 35 years later, Fishers has been transformed into something that's completely different than it was when I was a kid. And this is how things went in the ancient world as well. Good businesses would see a growing city as an opportunity. So they would formulate a plan and then set out to ply their trade in an area that was prospering where they believed they could succeed. And that's what we see in verse 13. We see businessmen who chose their time today or tomorrow. They chose their place, such and such city. They chose their schedule. It's going to happen in a year. They chose their operation, engaging in business, whatever their trade was. And they set their goal, making a profit. Is there anything wrong with that plan? Anything sinful with that plan? Is there something morally or ethically wrong with doing a market analysis and then formulating a plan to, to plant your business in that market? Is there something immoral about saying there's an opportunity in a certain city, so let's go there, let's set up shop, let's expand our presence in that area, let's make a profit? I think pretty much every good business would follow a plan similar to this, right? Proverbs 21.5 even says, The plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. So examining Scripture with other Scripture, I don't see any scriptural principles that are, are broken here, at least in what is said, right? Seems like a pretty standard business plan. So the issue here, the issue that's bothering James, is obviously not expressed in anything that's said, but in something that's unsaid. And what is unsaid in this business plan is anything about God. There's no thought of God whatsoever in this plan. In fact, it reminds me, and it probably reminds all of us, of the guy in Luke chapter 12, who had a, a bumper crop, and he didn't have anywhere to store all of this grain. So what did he do? Did he consult God? Did he ask God, how can I use my surplus to be a blessing to others? Did he ask God, should I sell the surplus so that I can make an investment in someone or something? No. 
Without ever consulting God, he makes the decision to build bigger barns, to store up all this grain so that he can live a life of ease for many years to come. And he lived happily ever after, right? For 24 hours. This is the same kind of lack of interest in the will of God that we're seeing here in James chapter 4. These men were not consulting God. They weren't asking for his guidance or his blessing. They were making declarative statements. We will go to such and such city. We will make a profit. You see any room for God in those plans? So what I'd like us to do with verse 14 of this passage is to see two reasons why plans that don't include God are foolish. And the first reason is this. As humans, we are ignorant of the future. So let's read verse 13 again and the first sentence of verse 14. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. We are ignorant about the future. None of us knows what's going to happen to us tomorrow. Has there ever been a more self-explanatory sentence than that one? I could probably just go on to my next point, but I don't want you to feel cheated, so I'm going to say some more stuff anyway. No one knows what their life is going to be like tomorrow because life is not simple. Life is like this infinitely complex labyrinth of spiritual and material forces, of events, people, and circumstances, and none of those are independent of each other. At any one moment in time, somebody on the other side of the world can have a, a, a decision that they make that impacts people all over the world. There's just this chain reaction that happens. And in our world today, it's really easy for that to happen, for an event to take place in China that has impact on us instantaneously. And in between, those things can cause an infinite number of additional chain reactions that have the opportunity to cause impact in our lives. No one can know the future because it's just too complicated. And I'm glad about that, aren't you? If not, then you probably haven't considered the implications. I found a quote from Charles Spurgeon that I think highlights why none of us would want to know the future. Spurgeon writes, We are benefited by our ignorance of the future. It is hidden from us for our good. Suppose a certain man is to be very happy by and by. If he knows it, he will be discontent until that happy hour arrives. Suppose another man is to have a great sorrow. It is well that he does not know it, for now he can enjoy the present good. If we could have all our lives written in a book with everything that was to happen to us recorded therein, and if the hand of destiny should give us the book, we should be wise not to read it. We ought for every reason to be thankful that we do not know the future. But at any rate, we can clearly see that to count on it is folly and that ignorance of it is a matter of fact. Doesn't that make sense? Not only is it impossible for us to know the future, but it would be terrible for us if we did. This is one area where ignorance probably truly is bliss. So the first reason it's foolish to plan without God is that we're ignorant of the future. 
And the second reason is because our lives are so fragile. So we'll read 13 and all of 14 now. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. We are so very temporary. The sad reality is that all of us gathered here today will die very soon. Even if we live to become the oldest people on the face of the planet in light of eternity, we're just kind of like a breath on a cold day. We see it and then it disappears. We're like that rich man in Luke chapter 12 planning for his future, not knowing that his life would be over the next day. Life is brief. I know it doesn't seem like it if you're in your 20s or 30s, but at age 50, I can tell you that life goes by quick. 30 years into my marriage with grown kids and grandkids, it's fast. Whenever I preach a graveside service, I tell this story, and it's a true one. During my years in nursing, I had the opportunity to know a number of people who lived to be over 100 years old. And what do you talk about with someone who lives to be over 100 years old? You want to know how they got to be over 100 years old, right? Every one of them, without exception, told me, I can't believe that I'm 100 years old. I can't believe how fresh my childhood feels, how recent it seems. Life goes by fast. And the truth is that the majority of us gathered here won't live to be 100 years old. If the past two years of pandemic have taught us anything, I hope it's that Life is fragile, and it can be gone in an instant. How ridiculous it is for us to plan as if we could know the future and as if our lives can't be over in an instant. Life is brief. And so James is saying ignoring God's will is not only foolish because you're ignorant of the future, but it's ignorant because, or but it's foolish because your life is so fragile and it's so brief. Instead, James says in verse 15, when we're making plans, we ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. As many times as I've read this passage in my life, I've never caught this before, that first James says, even the very breaths we breathe are dependent on God's will. If the Lord wills, first and foremost, we will live. I've always kind of read this like, we will live and do this or that. Not like we will live and do this or that. It's separate. Assuming it's God's will, we live. Then we can make plans. And even then, it's only after fully acknowledging that God is ultimately in control of our plans. I'm reminded here of a couple verses that we, most of us probably know by heart. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. That's another revelation I had a few years ago that he says paths in that verse, not path. God will make our paths straight. I don't think it's an accident that paths is the plural in that passage because the truth is we all have to leave room in our plans for God to take us on detours or maybe even change our path completely, put us on a new path, because only God knows the future. 
It may be that in God's big plan for the world, my plan for my life or my business is going to be drastically altered. But here's the cool thing. If we're not leaning on our own understanding, if we're leaning on God's understanding, and if we're acknowledging that he's ultimately in control, even when God places us on a new path, we don't have to panic because he's going to make that path straight. We can be confident that because God is in control of everything, he's in control of that path. Now, to this point, this passage was really easy to kind of dissect. It hasn't been hard to understand. But then we come to verse 16 and verse 17, and these were a struggle for me. So I want to read the passage again in its entirety one more time before we begin our final dissection. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Now, there's a huge change in tone that happens in verse 16, so much so that it caused me to wonder if maybe these two verses were actually connected to the beginning of chapter 5. I struggled over this for a full day because I just wasn't seeing the boasting that James is talking about. And I wasn't seeing it because in my mind, boasting, I'm thinking of someone boasting over another person, taunting another person, like a basketball player who just dunked on his opponent, and then he grabs it and pretends like he's ripping his jersey. You know, he's boasting that I'm the best. Or a rich person flaunting their wealth. Or a brilliant-minded person treating someone less intelligent like they're less intelligent, right? In my mind, boasting was kind of like this public thing directed at other people. And I just wasn't seeing it in this passage because these, these, these men weren't standing up bragging that they didn't need God's help in their business. Where's the boasting? And I'm kind of embarrassed to admit this, but it literally took me a full day struggling over these verses before it finally hit me. I was reading commentaries and it was like reading Chinese and just not seeing it. And then it hit me like a ton of bricks. The businessmen in their passage, they weren't boasting over other men. It was directed towards God himself. By making plans for the future with no concern for the will of God, it's like they were saying to God, hey, you can, you can take a break, big guy. We got this. Can you see that? These were Jewish Christians that James is writing to. They had Jewish heritage and had come to know Christ as their Savior. It's as if they were saying to God, Oh, great and mighty God, who led our forefathers out of Egypt, brought the plagues on the Egyptians and led our families out, who split the Red Sea before us, fed our ancestors with manna for 40 years and made sure that our clothes didn't wear out and our sandals didn't rot. O oh, great and mighty God who knocked down the walls of Jericho without us lifting a hand. 
And then, great and mighty God, who sent your Son so that when we were dead in our trespasses and enemies of God, you brought us back from the dead and made us alive together with Christ. Yeah, that God. You can take a break now. Because we got this. Tomorrow, we're going to go over here to the city. We're going to set up shop. We're going to sell our stuff. We're going to make a profit. We got it. They weren't boasting to man. They were boasting to God, the ultimate arrogance. They were ignoring the fact that unless God wills it, they wouldn't even be able to take another breath, let alone make a profit. They had no idea what the future held. And here's the thing. From the outside, these guys may not have looked arrogant at all. They were businessmen. They probably had means, probably some wealth. And it may have been that they were good contributors to the church. They may have been kind to other people and active members of the church. They may not have looked prideful from the outside at all. But on the inside, they were full of pride. They were living as if they were self-made men, as if God wasn't responsible for their prosperity. And verse 17 is given to drive the point home. Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. See, way back at the beginning, we talked about the fact that it wasn't their business plan that was the problem. The business plan was just standard. The problem is that these were men who knew God. They were men who knew of God's faithfulness to Israel throughout history. They were men who at some time through the work of the Holy Spirit had had their spiritual eyes opened, enabling them to see themselves as hopelessly lost in sin, hopelessly dead in sin, and they had received life-saving grace from Jesus. And yet here they were, in essence, setting God on a shelf like some kind of idol that they could come back and get whenever they got in a jam, something they needed. You sit right there, God, and we'll come get you when we need you. But they knew better, right? They had to know better. They knew about Job, who famously said, God gives and God takes away. They knew God was sovereign over all things. And they had experienced him. They never would have come to saving faith in Christ without recognizing that they were dead in their sin and destined for an eternity separated from God and utterly hopeless unless God was the one who intervened. And he did through the blood of his one and only son. And yet here they were making plans for their future, not consulting God as if they didn't need his blessing. They knew they were hopeless without God. They knew they should submit their, submit their plans to him. But because of pride, they were refusing to do it. So that's why James writes, Therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. As humans, we tend to think of sin as an action. Like if I punch Josiah in the nose, or if I steal money from Kathy, those are obvious things that I might do that we can say, oh, that was sinful. We can see that, right? Those are obvious sins. But what James is driving home here is that not doing something that we know we should do is just as sinful as doing something that we know we shouldn't do. 
Sins of omission are no less sinful than sins of commission. They're just a lot harder to root out because we are so good at self-deception. Those of us here today probably all like to think of ourselves as pretty good at living the Christian life. We attend church, we pay our tithes and offerings. When there's an event going on, we show up at the church to be a part of it. When our neighbors are struggling, we might even pray with our neighbors. Outwardly, we're doing all the right things. But there's another question. How's your heart? Are you actively, daily seeking God's will? That's one place where all of us need to take a good, hard look at our hearts. Because that's a sin that's easy for us to cover. It eventually comes to the surface, but we can keep that one buried for a really long time. If I'm being brutally honest, in our life, this is one place that Kim and I have failed many times, and I doubt we're alone. We have made plans without consulting God. We have executed plans without consulting God. And when we do this, it's like we're saying to God, hey, we'll, we'll come get you when we need you, but we got this. And at times, we've even had the audacity to be mad at God when our plans didn't turn out the way we planned. Anyone else? <laughs> but none of us should want to keep going back to that place. So as we close, I know we've read it a whole bunch, but I want to read verses 13 to 15 one more time. And then I want us to apply them directly to those of us gathered in this room. Beginning with verse 13. Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. As we've already discussed, while it's true that we cannot know the future, and while it's true that life is brief, we serve a sovereign and eternal God who knows every detail of every spiritual and material force in the entire universe. And He knows every person. He has enclosed each of us behind and before, the psalmist says, and every day that he has ordained for us were all written when as yet there was not one of them. He knows every event. He knows every circumstance. He knows everything with perfect detail, including the exact nanosecond when each one of us gathered here will take our last breath on this side of eternity. And he knows the same things about every single person on the entire planet. And he's directing all of that for his ultimate purpose. And the most amazing thought is that he wants to make each and every one of us a part of his purposes. So not only is it foolish to direct our lives without considering the will of God because we're ignorant of the future and because we're only here for a little while, but it's also foolish to live that way because when we do, we're ignoring the one and only thing that can give our lives true meaning. The work of God in us and through us. He alone is the one who controls everything. 
We cannot know the future. None of us can know how much time we have on this side of eternity. But we can know the one who does. And we can be sure that he has plans for us. Plans to prosper us and not to harm us. To give us a future and a hope. So why in the world would we not ask him daily to guide us to his plan? Why would we not pray and ask God his will every day? Why would we not search the scriptures for his will every day? And that, my friends, is my prayer for this body, that we would be a people who are all about doing and seeking the will of God. So if you're here today and you already know Jesus as your Savior, my encouragement will be to ask him to show you those places in your heart that you're keeping for yourself. Those places where pride is causing you to refuse to surrender to his will. And then repent. Because none of us knows what tomorrow holds. We don't even know what it holds ten minutes from now. How many days we have left on the earth is unknown to us. We don't want to miss one single minute of being in the part of God's plan. And being in the will and God's will and a part of his plan as he executes it. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I would ask you, don't leave here today without inviting him to be Lord of your life. He has a plan for you, and I promise it'll be better than the plans you have for yourself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we've been able to gather here today. Uh, We thank you that your will is being done. We thank you that you have a plan that includes each and every one of us and you want to make us a part of doing whatever it is that your your purposes are for us. Father, I pray that you would give us all the courage to walk in that. Give us the, the gumption we need and the courage we need to walk in the center of your will, to seek it every day and to walk in it. In Jesus' name I ask it.